everyone. Hope you're having a great snowy day and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson and as always, I'm really glad you've joined us. A little later in the show, we are going to wrap up discussion of the impeachment trial of Donald Trump, which ended yesterday with the Senate deciding not to remove the president from office, even though the House did impeach him. Mark Crewman, who is the founding director of the Center for the Study of Citizenship and a professor of history at Wayne State University, is going to join us to talk about where this fits in the history of this country and how it may have changed the way we see the executive branch and the relationship with Congress going forward. So you're going to want to stay tuned to that conversation as well. It will get started at about 40 minutes past the hour. But first, by now you have likely heard the term trigger warning. It's become an increasingly common disclaimer at the start of any contentious or potentially sensitive conversation, and it is especially prevalent on college campuses. But how is this additional layer of emotional consideration impacting young people in academic settings and in their everyday lives? This topic is explored in the book, The Coddling of the American Mind, and we are joined now by one of its co-authors, Greg Lukianoff, who is also a First Amendment expert and president of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. Greg, welcome to Detroit Today. Uh, good morning. I was actually in the Detroit airport uh, just yesterday. Oh, is that right? It's a good thing you got out because uh, it's a little snowy now. I'm, you might have had a delay if you had tried to get I, in the I did have today. two Coney dogs. <laughs> well, there you go. That's, that's, that is excellent. Uh, all right. Let's start with uh, what exactly you mean by the term coddling of the American mind and who's responsible for the coddling you say you're observing in today's youth. It's funny. I've never actually been a fan of the title. <laughs> you don't like American the title mind. of your own book. <laughs> I, and I, and I, I thought I'd, it was the title of an article I wrote with John Haidt in 2015. I didn't like it then. And then I was like, no way, that's going to be the name of the book. And then at the last minute, the publisher was like, nope, it's going to be the name of the book. I'm like, no. Because really, like, I, I preferred the title Disempowered because um, that's what I really think we're doing to a generation of students. I think we're uh, proceeding from the... Um, assumption that they have less resilience, um, that we have to kind of uh, protect them from, fr frankly, just a lot of the world. And what, the way we explain coddling and how I can live with it is all we mean is sometimes attempts to help people, to protect people, can actually backfire and, as I wanted to title it, disempower them. Hmm. So talk about how that's happening on college campus. What is happening that you say is failing young people and setting that generation of young people up for failure. Well, to give you a little bit of backstory here, I've been working on campuses um, since about uh, tw uh, 2001. I'm a First Amendment specialized lawyer. And for all of my career, uh, the students were absolutely the best constituency for freedom of speech. Uh, then around 2013, 2014, um, I started, uh, it was, and actually wasn't even noticing, it was really obvious. Um, you started having a lot more movement of students against uh, uh, particular speakers, incidents in which they were shouted down. Um, that's when you start hearing about microaggression, new microaggression policies, uh, trigger warnings, um, disinvitations, of course. 
And this was a real dramatic shift. It was very sudden. And one of the things that really also caught my eye is that a lot of it was justified in terms of uh, sort of medicalized rationales, uh, whereas previous students, of course, always argued that I don't want that politician here because I think his views are offensive. Um, it turned much more into I don't want that person here because it will be psychologically harmful. Not, usually it's not to me, but to other people in, in the community. And as someone who you know struggled with depression m m myself and, and got over it using cognitive behavioral therapy, I was looking at this going like, this actually seems like a idea that could actually make anxiety and depression worse and also make universities um, uh, less open and less, less willing to sort of entertain uh, spirited debates. So I wrote an article about it in 2015 with, uh, in the Atlantic with John Haidt, um, and <laughs> I usually joke, and it solved the whole problem. <laughs> um, but this was before we had data on, um, or at least good data, on what the situation for mental health was. Uh, and what it turns out, unfortunately, is that uh, while we were seeing this exact same trend right at 2013, 2014, if you look at the graphs, the incoming students had markedly higher rates of anxiety, depression, and worst of all, self-harm and suicide. Mm. And part of the premise is that, um, you know, if you take the sort of Band-Aid solution, if you take the Band-Aid solution being like, listen, we're just going to... Um, try to steer. So, so I'll, I'll use the example of tr uh, trigger warnings, but it's it, it's almost more of a metaphor for the whole thing. So Oberlin College, for example, tried to pass um, a trigger warning policy uh, without input from the faculty, which is <laughs> never never a good idea. Mm. Um, and in this and at, at, and at Oberlin, they they said not only should we um, warn people if there's going to be content that's related to, and they had a huge list. It was everything from racism to colonialism to sexuality to uh, violence. Um, we should avoid those topics as much as possible. And of course, as soon as the faculty hears about this, we're like, how on earth am I going to do my job if I have to, uh, if I have to avoid every serious topic, you know, um, in my field? Um, and there, so there, there was this idea that you could, you, you could benefit by avoiding things. And the problem that, that I see, to also to continue using the metaphor of trigger warnings, is that you can turn something that merely is an aversion into something that feels a lot more like a phobia. And worst of all, if you turn it into a schema, the idea that it's kind of fundamentally part of you to um, not, not, not handle being exposed to, say, uh, discussion of violence, um, that's actually can be deeply psychologically harmful. And we, we, we've, saw, we've seen this uh, approach um, in speech code policies and um, uh, e even in the way that they, uh, students are introduced, introduced to campus, um, that the fear is that we're helping at least in part create a self-fulfilling prophecy of anxiety, depression, a sense of helplessness by kind of assuming that there is great fragility, that there is great help, uh, th that all of these students need uh, need constant attention. Hmm. So, so one of the things that I really want to talk to you about is this idea that these things that are being done on college campuses, which you admit are being done with good intention, mm -hmm. uh, are, are somehow unnecessary. Mm -hmm. And there's there are, there are parts of the book where it seems like you're saying uh as you just said here that that somehow this is more harmful to young people than protecting them uh or or, or than than letting them you know experience some of these things uh in in classrooms and and other places and i guess i i guess i really want to get you to talk about how this this idea that you have fits into the narrative, the truth of the narrative of the the kinds of things that that students uh, students of color, 
women, religious minorities have faced on college campuses and in general society for such a long time. I mean, this idea that uh, that discussion of violence or discussion of race and racism might invoke uh, memories of really painful episodes, uh, flashbacks to things that that uh, were really painful or harmful to somebody. Do you dismiss that offhand? Do you do you not buy the idea that these environments on campuses should be um, should be mindful even of those possibilities? Uh, Universities have very special roles, and it's not an easy role, but we really rely on them to have very difficult discussions because we really do rely on them to be um, sort of our arbiters of what what, what is true in in the world. Um, We have a world-class, you know, industry of of colleges and universities, um, and it has to be, you have to be bold in questioning and talking about topics. And I actually do believe, and, you know, everything I've seen demonstrates this, that most students actually can handle it. But if you're telling them um, they can't, you can actually create, well, like, like I said, this sort of self-fulfilled, fulfilling prophecy um, that ends up creating a kind of aura of uh, of the having the speaker will, uh, on campus will actually create a uh, an intolerable um, climate. When in a lot of cases, when sometimes people show up on on, on campus, then people think there's going to be a huge to do about it and it ends up being kind of not that big of a deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes, and in a lot of cases I've seen, uh, you know, the speaker might say something that is much more reasonable <laughs> than the student was expecting in the first place. So starting from the, because, and, and this is one of the things I think is interesting. I think a lot of this starts from sort of a, a, a presumption of sort of like a, a parental maternal kind of instinct that we have to protect these kids that at least to the generation of sort of civil liberty, liberties, uh, you know, advocates of the 60s and 70s sounds very sort of paternalistic, maternalistic, and vaguely insulting. Hmm. Uh, this is Detroit Today, 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Greg Lukianoff, co-author of The Coddling of the American Mind. He's also the president of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. We're having a conversation about what students should be facing on college campuses. What challenges should they face to the things that they believe? Should we be protecting them from things that they might find offensive or things that might invoke painful memories of discrimination or bias? Or ought we be allowing those things to happen, uh, allowing exposure to those things as a way of expanding their minds, of encouraging learning and encouraging seeing things from different perspectives. As always, we would love if you want to join the conversation, give us a call. Say, Tell us uh, if you participate in a protest or a social movement from an earlier generation. What do you think about giving controversial people platforms to speak out on college campuses? Is that a great idea? Should it be handled in a way that does protect people but doesn't stifle speech? Or do you think those people shouldn't be invited at all? Uh, Do you ever intentionally expose yourself to views you disagree with or find painful or difficult? Uh, And what do you think you get when you do that. As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we will work you into the conversation. Before we get to the listeners, uh, I want to talk about the generational 
uh, aspect here. You're, you're saying that this is something you saw really turn in mm-hmm. 2013. If we go back to the Stone Age when I was in college uh, in the 19, late 1980s, uh, early 1990s, <laughs> Uh, I remember a lot of this discussion unfolding as well, mm-hmm. and back then we called it political correctness, right? That that uh, or or the the critics of it called it political correctness. But what I remember is uh, a, a new generation of more diverse population on campus trying to assert its place on that campus and to say some of the things that were being said, some of the things that were being done. We're not okay. It was not okay to make racist jokes on the campus radio station. It was not okay to say something to someone in class that was uh, sexist or, or, or racist. And the answer from the majority population was, well, that's political correctness. But really what it was was an effort by students who had been excluded uh, for for forever from campuses who are now joining in larger numbers saying this is what our space sh- should look like. I-, I wonder if you can contrast that era to what you're seeing now. Um, well, before I do, I want to I clarify something. And I, and I think it's very helpful for uh, p- people to get so put some meat on the bones to what this actually looks like, because when it stays in the in in the realm of abstraction, it's always well we uh, we have these good intentions and we want to protect uh, women and, and sexual minorities and, and minorities in general, and we're going to pass these rules and it will benefit them. Um, that's not generally the way it works. And as a civil a civil liberties guy, you, you you generally see that that um a lot of times the original intention of what the restriction is doesn't look anything like the actual implementation. Mm-hmm. So I'll give uh, three examples of the biggest cases I'm dealing with right now. One represents the polarization issue um, uh, that we talk about in, in the case that is actually in, in, in the book that is actually speeding everything up. And this is probably the case I'm the most angry about. At Babson College in um, in Massachusetts, a professor um, who was commenting, who was cracking a joke, frankly, about um, uh, Donald Trump's uh, uh, statement that he's going to attack cultural sites in Iran, put out a tweet saying, hey, uh, Ayatollah Khomeini, and of course, that's you know, he being anachronistic right there, um, you should uh, you should consider these places to attack, uh, the Mall of America or the Kardashian residence. I mean, if you end something in the Kardashian res- uh, residence, obviously you're kidding. Um, and he was fired immediately for that, partially because of this environment that we've created where we're very, uh, where universities, you know, um, if something can be offensive, they, they, they tend to jump on it. Also at Harvard, um, and this was just, this has been since the uh, book has been produced, uh, a, a eminent African-American defense lawyer who'd actually spent his career defending you know, people all over the political spectrum, including poor and indigent minorities um, as well. Uh, was removed from his job um, as a uh, as a steward of a, a, a of a, a college of a, of a housing um, of a dormitory uh, because he he represented um, Harvey Weinstein. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, to this this to me is I'm a lawyer, so you know we actually think of it as noble and correct to def- to defend even the most despicable people. We actually think of that as like placing your your uh, your ego to one side and actually doing what's what what's for the greater good. And the idea that he could be fired for that, but the justification very much came from the original idea that we can make this a more tolerant place, and it ended up meaning that they ended up uh, kicking out of a, an important job, an African-American scholar. 
um, at Truman State University, for example. Um, this was also kind of warped because they uh, used an emotional um, uh, offensiveness, uh, a, a fragility argument, um, to ban information from the vegan club <laughs> on campus. Um, so in a lot of cases, I do hear a lot of, of people talking about kind of like, well, there's these these, these broader goals to, to right past wrongs. And then when you see what they look like when they're actually in the hands of the people who implement them, um, they end up being borderline nonsensical in a lot of cases. But but I guess what I'm asking is is whether uh, whether you see any any uh, merit at all or, or or credibility in the idea that college campuses forever were unwelcome spaces for a lot of groups, and that a lot of what you're seeing is an effort to make them more welcome, even if it's and even if it's resulted in these these ex- excesses that uh, you're bringing up. The idea that college campuses have to change and that the climate has to change is is something that I guess I'm wondering what what you think of, uh, about. Do you agree that 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 those things need to be done? And that's and that's entirely legitimate to argue for that. The um, in the 1980s, like you said, the first sort of great age of uh, speech codes um, was also at the same time a huge expansion of the diversity of the student population. Right. So, um, but definitely, you know, from uh, uh, I'm on the side of, and that means, you know, a greater commitment to discussion, to uh, making, uh, to, to inclusion um, and having, having difficult discussions. Whereas by the end of the 80s, as a, as a lot of us thought, it was more like putting up the white flag saying, listen, this isn't, Discuss, d- discussing these things isn't working, so let's actually clamp uh, clamp down on speech. And unsurprisingly, um, at University of Michigan, um, one of the first universities to pass speech codes in, yes. in the mid 1980s. That's the, the campus I was on when they when they had the speech code. In fact, right, and the, the, some of the f- first students who were charged under it were actually African American students themselves. Right. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation about how we have difficult conversations on college campuses, and we are going to get to listeners, lots of folks in queue to talk about this subject. Chris in Detroit, Jim in Pontiac, Victoria in Detroit, Lori in Ferndale, Jennifer and Warren. We will hear from you next. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest is Greg Lukianoff, co-author of The Coddling of the American Mind and president of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. We're talking about how we talk about difficult subjects on college campuses. Are we going too far and protecting young people from even just basic challenge to their ideas, the things that are kind of at the core of the idea of education and higher ed? Uh, Or should we be more concerned about the things that young people face and what impact that has on them emotionally. As always, we want to hear from you on the phones. 313-577-1019 is the number. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page or to Twitter and put comments there, and we will work you into the conversation. Let's get to some of our callers here. Let's start with Victoria in Detroit. Victoria, welcome to Detroit Today. Hey. First time caller. Um, (coughs) Sorry, I'm a little winded. That's okay. Um, So, like, to add my perspective on the point of view, um, I think as an African-American woman going into a lot of settings that did not represent me, 
there was always an uh, fulfillment to increase diversity, but never to be inclusive. So, like, I didn't know what caucusing was until I entered a workplace that provided structural imp- implementation to say that, like, a lot of our systems are based on white supremacist ideologies. And I was just like, I did not expect my workplace to have this narrative of inclusive, inclusive spaces mm-hmm. and equitable commitments in a way that would allow me to actually speak my voice in a way that was authentic. For example, there were structural things that were going on in a workplace that my white colleagues did not see as being oppressive, but for myself, it was it was oppressive for me to censor the way that I was wearing my clothing, censor the way that I was wearing my hair, censor the way that I was talking in the sense of code switching. So for example, I would speak to a few colleagues that were African-American and I would code switch and I would talk to them in a different dialect. And I had a supervisor pull me over and saying, you're not representing the company in the values that we hired you for. And I said, what values are those? Because hmm. for me to speak a dialect that is authentic to me is for me to speak dialects that allow me to be efficient, for me to make sure that I'm conducting my, myself in a way that's professional and to challenge not only myself, but also to challenge the norms that you grew up with and for you to say that like, hey, I mean, I understand the lens you're coming from, but let's have an open dialogue about it. Hmm. Um, I think a lot of structures do not allow the accessibility for people to truly access the power that they have themselves. Because if you allow people to come into a structure that, that compromise themselves to begin with, you're not having authentic voices. For example, if someone grew up in the suburbs of, let's say, in Birmingham, and you're African-American, and you grew up in Detroit, you have two different perspectives. So you're you're coming from two different biases just to begin with. So imagine that you have a different experience when you come from a different social class, a different ethnicity. We don't have a lot of spaces to have like true dialect to say that like, Hey, the reasons why you think the way that you do is because of biases that exist. Right. And we're not even honoring that to begin with. Yeah. So, like uh, Victoria, I, I, I really appreciate the call and, and, the, the perspectives there. Uh, Greg Lukianov, one of the things she's getting at there is, again, this idea that if, if you are part of a, a class of Americans that has been excluded uh, from college campuses or other spaces for such a long time, and once you arrive, uh, you, you sort of uh, awake to the ways in which those spaces have been structured uh, around the majority population, and in some cases, uh, uh, to your detriment. Uh, I, I, again, what's wrong with saying we got to we got to deal with this? We have to think of these things differently, and we have to reconstruct that space in a way that includes everybody. Um, there's absolutely nothing wrong with saying that. Um, the where you know I, I would would disagree, and I didn't hear this at all in what she was saying. Mm-hmm. Um, the, it would be where you're saying someone has to be fired because they um, uh, you know have the wrong opinion, um, and I see this a lot, unfortunately. Or, or a student has to be ha- has to be expelled. That's really the point of departure. But when it comes to this kind of like boogeyman of safe spaces, um, and this is something that conservatives really glom onto. Um, they have this idea that this that this is a term that means something very specific when I've seen about seven different meanings for it. But what I was hearing in the caller's um, uh, 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 um, uh, argument was the lack of the idea of having what I grew up, came up with, which was the idea that a safe space was an, was an opportunity to actually ha- 
have serious talks to be to be real and actually get into the nitty gritty and, and talk about the difficult things. And I think partially what I was hearing as well is that lots of campuses, um, they talk about, you know, um, having inclusivity and, and, and diversity and having diverse points of view. Uh, but then uh, a lot of them will actually sort of push people to their um, uh, to groups that reflect their existing viewpoints and, and don't facilitate the difficult conversations in between. Um, and that's one of the things that I think is it, 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 one of the reasons why I oppose uh, speech codes is that you're not, you know, not not safer um, from the world for knowing less about it, for knowing less about what people really think. And I do think cam- uh, campuses punt on this a lot. Hmm. Uh, AK on Twitter says, does he, Greg, uh, believe that public universities have an obligation to grant neo-Nazi Richard Spencer a platform? How about anti-immigrant rabble-rouser rabble riser, uh, Milo Yiannopoulos? Let's not pretend this is just about oversensitive youth. What about the most extreme sure. speech? What well, about, yeah, go ahead. I, I'm, I'm an old school ACLU guy. I worked at the ACLU of Northern California. I think my answer here is going to be pretty predictable. I think, the, I think the ACLU was right to defend the Nazis at Skokie, for example. So bigots have free speech rights too. And I do think that there's kind of, people are thinking the marketplace of ideas metaphor has kind of harmed our thinking on freedom of speech. It gives this idea that the best idea will win, which is, of course, you know, just not true. Um, the best idea often flounders for, uh, for ages and might never win. But when you think of it more from the point of view of academic freedom, from the idea of we need to know our world, um, and we need, to, and it's really crucial that we know, and this is what I say a lot, is that it's absolutely essential to know what people really think and believe, not even if it's horrible, but especially if it's horrible. Because we're absolutely kidding ourselves if, that we're, if we believe we're safer from it from not knowing. So on a pure sort of informational stance, figuring out how you end up with someone like Richard Spencer, how you end up with Miley Yiannopoulos, um, that's something that academics should be like, I want to I get to the bottom of this. I want to figure this out. It's not the same thing as saying their speech is good. It's mm-hmm. something that you need to know about the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, Victoria, thanks very much for the call and the comments. Let's go to Jennifer in Warren. Jennifer, welcome to the show. Hi, guys. Hey. Um, for, well, first off, part of my point was to agree that Nazis should not have platforms, and I agree with that tweet completely. Um, and if they want to go do their speeches on YouTube or their own places, whatever, they do have free speech. But colleges should not be giving these people platforms to spread really harmful views. Um, but my my original point was that nobody in I, I was in college in 2013, which is when your guest says that this kind of started to happen. Um, nobody was asking for, oh, let's not talk about these. Let's not talk about um, sexual assault or racism or homophobia or anything. We just need a heads up. That's what a trigger warning is. A heads up. Hey, this is going to be the topic today. If you need to excuse yourself, that's your responsibility. You need to take care of yourself. Mm. But that nobody is saying, oh, we don't want to have these conversations at all. That's just that's just not true. We just, you know, trigger warnings are a heads up. This is what we're going to be talking about. If you need to, you know, leave because this will be really harmful to you, then you can do so. But the topics should still be discussed, and I don't think anyone is saying that they should never be talked about. Yeah, uh, uh, Jennifer, I really appreciate the call and the and the comments. Uh, again, Greg, this idea that there should be no limit when you are talking about speech. In other words, that 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 racist speech or a neo-Nazi. Uh, uh, speaker shouldn't be banned from campus, I think is very, you know, I mean, this is something we've been debating for a long time. 
And, you know, as Jennifer points out, uh, there are places for those people to gain a platform for their for their ideas. Why do college campuses have to do that, given their responsibility to create a, a, a conducive learning environment for for all students? Well, I did, I did want to address what the what the caller was saying about trigger warnings because mm-hmm. I think the tr- trigger warnings have become sort of a symbolic issue mm-hmm. in, in a lot of this that I, actually is very telling. So, um, I, I think everyone knows what trigger warnings are. Our argument uh, in the original article in the book was not these are silly. It was simply um, that there's no evidence they're helpful to people who suffer from trauma. There's lots of mainstream psychological reasons for thinking that they're harmful um, to individuals, both the individual suffering from trauma and from the people in the class. And three, they put professors in a difficult situation. And we surely have seen um, these rationales abused to get professors in trouble. And so far, there have been either three or four studies on trigger warnings. Um, All of them indicate that it doesn't help. Um, that, and that's that, that's in all of those studies. Um, a couple of them indicate that they actually, uh, well, actually, no, I think all, all of them as well, indicate that there's at least some inc- increase in anxiety um, when, when trigger warnings are used. And that increase is actually somewhat higher for people with PTSD. Um, so I I think that when you, when you look at that, um, it kind of is the perfect example of what I'm talking about here is that in some ways, some of the remedies that we're trying to come up with um, for, for these problems are actually ones that can actually make things uh, make things worse. Now, when it comes to um, controversial speakers on campus, yeah, I mean, my, my, my perspective is overall that it, if there's, for example, if there's a crazy conspiracy theory out there, um, and there are tons, um, that should be something an academic can be like, oh, my God, I want to know what this conspiracy theory is that, you know, maybe 15 percent of the population believes. Because consp- you know, these kind of un- like horrible facts about the world actually really affect the world. So, for example, the um, elders, uh, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, uh, conspiratorial book, complete nonsense, written in the, I think, 1920s or 19-teens, saying that basically Jews were um, an evil cabal of people trying to control the world. Um, it's you don't study that because you think it's good. You study it because you want to understand um, where uh, th- this awful history of anti-Semitism uh, came from and mm-hmm. what some of these people actually believed when they when they voted uh, voted for Nazis. It's all about understanding the world in which you live better. Mm-hmm. And also with regards to the idea that nobody's saying that 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 someone has to stop uh, discussing particular topics or can be punished for it. I mean, I get about a thousand case submissions a year at, at, at the fire of professors getting in trouble for what they say and, and students getting in trouble for what they say. So it is not the case that nobody is saying that someone should be punished or expelled. Mm. Uh, again, Jennifer, thanks for the call and the comments. Let's go to Lori in Ferndale. Lori, what's on your mind? Hello, how are you? Good, how are you? Good, thanks for taking my call. This is such an interesting conversation. I um, I really feel sort of because I can absolutely respect where both previous callers were coming from. And I am not an African-American woman, so I do not understand what that's like to be in a collegiate setting or in the workplace. But I am curious as to what the guest thinks about this sort of notion that we've all fallen into or conformed to in that it's easy to have a conversation to the peanut or like, you know, with people who are like-minded or have similar values and perspectives. And if you don't have dialogue with people who have different values and perspectives or point of views or experiences, that 
you never really grow. You're not mm-hmm. challenging yourself, and then you're also not challenging the other person. So I'm going to imagine that this Nazi person you guys are talking about probably has never really had dialogue with someone who's completely different or of a different race. Mm-hmm. So I'm just curious what your guests would think about that. Mm-hmm. Great question, Lori. Uh, uh, go ahead, Greg. Uh, great question. And one of the things that brought me and John Haidt together is we're very um, interested, um, but both from a, 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 a from a political standpoint, but also from a um, scholarly standpoint, in polarization spirals. Um, this is something that um, sociologists co- saw uh, coming in the 1970s, that eventually we'd move to the, the um, post-material society, uh, as, as he called it, um, that meant that we would increasingly be able to group around people who share uh, similar values to us, um, which, you know, when you say it like that, that sounds lovely. <laughs> but when you look at the, the way that, act, that mechanism works is it tends to drive people uh, further in the direction of what they already believed, because one, they get more arguments, two, their identity becomes I'm part of this group, and three, worst of all, it might become part of their, their their schema, you know, essentially like the idea that this is really, um, it's it, it's the war of us against uh, of us against them. And this sort of homophily effect, you know, is one of the ways it's called, um, can really kind of tear people apart and uh, hit the tribal switch, essentially, that it's us, uh, you know, this idea of kind of it, it being us versus them. And this is something that um, is has been getting worse in American society o- o- over the decades, and you can surely see this in our politics. Mm-hmm. Um, it's And it's interesting that having cross-cutting dialogues um, can actually damp this down to a degree. And cross-cutting dialogues mean, means the idea of people from different perspectives actually cross-cutting. What is shocking? Shocking, though, is at least, um, and there, there needs to be more research on this, because um, those studies I'm relying on, um, there needs to be updated data, uh, show that um, people who have the most education uh, tend to have the least cross-cutting dialogue, and people who have the least education tend to have more. In other words, high school uh, people with a high school degree tend to have more uh, discussions with people they politically disagree with or philosophically disagree with, and it goes down for every additional level of um, education uh, people have. Now, there's reasons for that, including the sort of glomming together of educated people in particular neighborhoods and in um, social media environments. Uh, but what you, it's not wrong to expect, though, from a scholarly mind to be kind of like, I have to constantly be aware of my uh, 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 my confirmation bias. I have to mm-hmm. constantly be poking my head outside of the bubble that I live in because that's more healthy intellectually, but it doesn't look like that's what we're doing. Mm. Uh, again, thanks very much for the call and the question, Lori. Let's go to Chris in Detroit. Chris, welcome to the show. Hey. Hey. Hold on, let me take off speaker. So one of the things I wanted to say is, is something that came up in the movie Milan. I'm 30, okay? So mm-hmm. I was a kid when this, when this movie came out. Mm-hmm. But uh, the flower, the flower that blooms in the harshest, in the harshest times, has the most. Sorry, the flower that has the most diversity will be the prettiest, prettiest of all. Hmm. That's also to say, when we when we have things that are hard, it, it gives us the biggest perspective of all. Like I don't like the the political climate right now, but I listen to everybody's view because it does help me create my own view, and it gives me perspective when I'm dealing with somebody with a different view. To say, okay, I understand why you're saying this. Well, let me explain my view to you. Hmm. Uh, Chris, I really appreciate the call and and the thoughts, and I think uh, Greg, you would probably agree pretty strongly with what he's saying. One hundred percent. I I think that um one of the things that uh, you know that sometimes people have a hard time with is part of being 
I think just a citizen or scholarly or, or, or whatever you might want to call it, is always taking seriously the possibility you might be wrong. Mm. Always taking that seriously. Mm. Um, and I think that, that by uh, some of the discoveries of, of freedom of speech is essentially realizing that we're <laughs> not that clever individually um, and that there's, uh, that there's an infinite ocean of things to know. And approaching the world with epistemic humility can just benefit your life in so many different ways. And it sure would benefit our politics. Mm. Let's go to Liz in Detroit. Liz, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi. Hey. Um, well, I, this conversation just makes me feel so good. <laughs> <Because> <laughs> Excellent. I've been doing um, research on epistemic oppression and how we navigate it with language. Hmm. And among my students that I spoke with or that I've um, interviewed, they use very specific um, very specific phrases to help them navigate spaces. But most times when they are silent, when they don't challenge themselves to address things that bother them, they become complicit with everything that they're combating. Hmm. Go just a little and, further with that yeah. idea, Liz. I mean, I, 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 this is very interesting. I think I get what you're talking about, but, but explain just a little more what, what you're seeing. And I guess you can go back to even... Like if if students don't want to have speakers on campuses, well, if if you don't allow the space for that speaker to come and then you to address what it is that you don't agree with and you can't talk those things out or at least express yourself, um, you become complicit with the action. You're silencing yourself, um, mm-hmm. and then you you just continue to uh, allow that whatever oppression or microaggression you're dealing with to have a platform and you not have anything. Mm. Mm. And so I've seen, even with phrases like it is what it is, or it's all good, more than not, whenever somebody is using those phrases, it's because something is exactly not good. (laughs) That's well said. It's because they don't agree. And it's kind of like mind sweeper, right? So you sometimes would rather not even deal with it um, (laughs) than have to address it. And I can say sometimes not dealing with things, depending on what it is, sure, it can help you in the short run. But in the long run game, to actually make a significant change in in the lives of many people, when you're talking about epistemic oppression of different minority groups, you have to, you have to speak out. And so on college campuses, maybe instead of having this trigger warning or not inviting people to speak at all with these controversial views, allow people the space to speak, but then provide services to help people if they are triggered. That way they can have somebody work through it with them, have people help them work through it, but then they're not being silent and silencing themselves and silencing others. Uh, Liz, I really appreciate uh, your calling and, and adding too. that to the discussion. Uh, Greg, I'll give you a chance to, to respond before we have to, before we have to break. Oh, I'd be happy to. I mean, I, I, I just entirely agree, of course. Um, when it comes to the the very real problem, though, of anxiety and depression on campus, I also take that very seriously. And, you know, someone who's suffered from this myself. And I do think that um, uh, being aware of ways that we actually might make it worse doesn't make it go away. Mm. And that um, I, I am happy to see that campuses, you know, a lot of them are offering a lot more services for anxiety and depression. But 
they're being overwhelmed at the moment because the numbers are just just that large. I'm pleased to see that there are increasingly uh, smart technological ways to even apps that allow people to to immediately get a counselor, um, uh, a, a psychological counselor to, to help them. Because I do think that we're, we are navigating a very real crisis, uh, and my fear is that in some cases we make it worse. And I, I think what the you know what the caller was saying about sort of being complicit. Um, in uh, epistemic uh, oppression by not challenging it, uh, that's that, that sounds to me like the ideal citizen the way to think about things. That essentially, yeah, I mean, being part of a democracy is always going to be difficult, and you know, it's totally fine sometimes to be kind of like, listen, I'm I'm not I'm not up for it today. I'm not going to challenge the the person I think is dead wrong on this thing. Um, but you can't always uh, o- o- avoid that if you think that there's that there's a very important underlying issue. And and, I've, and the amazing thing is we've all seen it. Sure, there are completely unconvincible ideologues, but we've also surely all met the person that after a little bit of pushback, and maybe doesn't initially change their mind, but after a little bit, they go, oh, yeah, actually, I hadn't thought of it that way. Mm. That really does still happen. Mm. All right. Greg Luciana, co-author of The Coddling of the American Mind. It was really great to have you here. Such a pleasure. Yeah. Right, thanks for coming by. Up next, we are going to talk about the Senate's acquittal of President Trump, kind of put a bow on all of the drama that unfolded in Washington over the last several months. Mark Crewman, history professor at Wayne State University, will put all of this in historical context for us. Stay with us on Detroit Today. Detroit Today. 